0: Welcome to the Us Without Them podcast, everybody. It's Joel here. Just a couple quick announcements before we dive into the conversation. Uh, Today we're talking about the song Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, and it's just a really fantastic conversation definitely one of my favorites of the season um before we get to that though just want to remind everybody that it's super helpful for us if you would rate and review the podcast on apple google play rate it on spotify uh this just helps us to appear higher in search results so that other people can find the show um So it'd be really, really nice uh, if you enjoy the podcast to go ahead and do that. All right. Now we're going to get into the conversation. Enjoy.
1: We go back to to Nice and Blue just for a moment. This um, ending musical section. There's a musical statement and a very emphatic statement that the band make. That I think deserves mention. If if we're picturing this as sort of the last like possibility of, of A triumphing in this, because of course every chord in Song Nice and Blue has an A in it. <laughs> uh, we also have just the way that these are voiced, talking about like where the chord where the note fits is either the bottom, the top, or the middle of the chord. Hmm. We have A in the middle. A. A stays right in the middle there and the other two voices hmm. move out, just sort of this slide like a half step away. So. Hmm. And that A holds as the center while everything else is kind of like slipping out of it. It's, it's a chilling effect. It's a really cool. Yeah. But what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> folks at home want to guess what those two notes are. <laughs>
2: A B if I had to guess.
3: Yeah.
1: uh, yeah. A B. B. So it's just, and it's just, it just keeps hammering home. And like, you can't, like, it's such a strong statement that the whole, like, and you know, Ricky's hitting the drums, accenting those notes. All like the bass and both guitars are just all playing unison. A B. So it's like, it won't let you forget that there's a progression where this is going. Um, even though A has been this sort of like comfortable sound throughout this whole song, um, that B just <laughs> won't leave you alone. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, especially with this sort of like soft upper voice. You know, those oohs. That have been like trying to draw the song back down to A earlier. And then the response is. And it just it just keeps happening, and then the song's over, and then of course that finds its conclusion, and everything was beautiful and nothing hurt.
0: Can I just say I have been so excited to talk about this song, even though I think from like a musical standpoint, like I'm sure that most people, if if they were to identify a filler track on A to B Life, they might point to this song because it is. So incredibly different, I think, um, in a lot of ways. And it's it's much slower, right? The even when you get to the screaming part, right? It's yeah, it's intense. <laughs> but um it, it's very much in a kind of like sort of post-rock style in a lot of ways. I mean, even the, yeah. small, the screamy part with the reverb guitars uh, and everything, mm-hmm. it's it's very reminiscent of a lot of um, like heavier, like post-rock, post-metal sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it's a it's a slow burn. <laughs> it is a slow Truly. burn. But I think that it's so fascinating from, from a lot of different standpoints, um, from everything from the title to the use of done, and and how that fits into sort of the trajectory that we've been building toward. Like we're now at sort of the conclusion of the first act or movement of mm-hmm. the record, which mm-hmm. is the third act of the narrative that we're, that's the argument we're, we've been making. Sure, sure. So I don't know where it makes sense to start. I have <laughs> a lot to say, a lot to say about the title. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so we won't save that till the end this time. I'm yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that up front. I yeah. also have a lot to say just about John Donne, uh, some of the influence that I see on. Aaron's writing style and one of the, you know, kind of struck me as I was like reminding myself about Dunn and you know, I think the last time I read him was in a some class in in grad school, my English yeah. MA program. Yeah, I was just reminding myself about Dunn and and sort of why he's important and all of a sudden it struck me that like a lot of the reasons why Dunn is considered important uh, could be reasons why Aaron as a songwriter is considered important. So I, I, hmm. I, I want to talk about that as well particularly the way that they both use a metaphorical style called metaphysical conceit so we'll i'll, I'll save that that's a little teaser yeah <laughs> Get yeah excited, yeah, everybody no, that's great <laughs> we're going to talk about metaphysical conceit today <laughs> okay so yeah i don't know where where should we where should we start with this
1: i i think we should start at the beginning uh, which is a long ways before the title line is spoken. Yes. So yep. the, the way this song is structured is really two big sections. There's an A section and a B section. And And as on point as that is, I can't think of a better way to describe it because really it is just two big blocks of different yep. music. Right. And the first block is this riff on the bass yeah. that just keeps repeating over amazing and over bass. Again. Amazing bass.
2: Amazing bass oh,
1: Yeah. It's Love the best that. thing that Dan gets to play on this whole album. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's
2: Incredible. It's a great
1: riff. And yeah. it's um and it's not the first time we've heard this little snippet of music. It's the first time you hear it in this fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Um But there's been a very, very similar line to that. So earlier on the ghost, we had this and then the second half of that phrase. Mm, Yeah, okay. Transpose. Wow. That bit down by a, a minor third. Oh, my God. I never noticed that, that before. Yeah, never it's, have.
0: Oh my god, that's the same riff.
1: Um, wow. But it's a you know it's a different instrument. It's in the bass instead of in the electric guitar. It's, yeah, it's a third lower. It's in a it's a lower octave. So there's there's like several layers of transformation that have gone on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to me it it feels it feels like the same idea come back again. So yeah. so earlier in the ghost, you know, we had sort of like worked up this notion that this chromatic descent figure. Both had whatever, you know, I could leave this somewhat open-ended, whatever connotations you have with like a descending figure, whether that's just general badness or whether that is some kind of lament, whether that's in this case mocking, you know, we talked about how this like high chromatic descending thing reminds yeah. people of this like circus music riff,
3: Right. the mm-hmm. line
1: and everything was beautiful and nothing hurt does not sound like circus music. Like it's no, it's no. down in that low lamenting register where that chromatic descent sort of has its natural place. Right. Um, the other thing that it makes me think of, and I f- I'm sorry if this is going way out on a limb, but it, r- it reminds me of J.S. Bach's chorale prelude on Dirsch Adams Fall is ganz verbert. Ver- of course. Verse, of course. Verse, yeah, that, that's <laughs> everyone's. <laughs> it comes. It just flies. It naturally comes to mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it's not the exact same riff. Um, and. If you can, you can cut this out later. Um, if this, if this seems totally irrelevant.
2: I plan on not cutting it out and leaving in you saying you can cut it out.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, okay, so uh, so let's just listen to a few seconds of this. I don't need to to go very far. Um, yeah. That's enough to get the flavor of it so yeah why does wow. this come to mind it's it's a chromatic descent figure with emphasis down in the lower register it's not the same thing it's not like this bach piece has this same exact riff in it but it's tapping into the kind of feelings that we get with a chromatic descending line with a low end register and for bach what this is doing is setting up this chorale tune that was written actually a generation earlier by a contemporary of, of Martin Luther Lazarus Spengler who uh, who wrote this basically mm. the, the song is about in Adam all humanity fell basically is the argument well what Bach is trying to do with it is create both kind of a foreboding feeling but also something that feels <clears throat> vaguely serpentine so you get these mm. these little noodly riffs in there that he's trying to evoke that something feels like a snake is sort of on the way and that's and and the way the The prelude works is that this is the music that he that had set up to play before everyone sings the lyrics that are you know stating this story from the bible so it kind of puts you in this snaky eerie mood before you start to sing these words about the snake and adam so so that's i've got that on the mind that that those kind of low gestures like that maybe evoke that kind of a feeling which to me brings up two two stories at once, of course, the story from, from Genesis 3, but also Orpheus as, you know, as he oh, goes yep. to the underworld. So so in the myth of Orpheus, his bride, Eurydice, they, on their wedding day is bitten by the snake that comes into this garden where she's getting garlands put on her head. She then descends into hell. And as the myth goes, then Orpheus has to go down to save her. And so there's all sorts of overlaps, uh, if you want to take like from the Genesis story all the way up until Uh, you know, this statement in the Apostles' Creed that, you know, after Christ died, he descended into hell. Mm -hmm. And then we have this sort of like harrowing of hell vision that works at the same time. Of course, none of this is in the lyrics of everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. But but there's something going on in the first half of this song, not only with that musical line that is sort of borrowed from this lamenting figure earlier, but then there's singing that happens. Yeah. There's singing that is not that words are not printed in the lyrics that come with the album Uh, and it's a different voice than we've heard singing yet and i think we should hang out with all that stuff that happens before the title line comes in and i'm sure there's lots to say about the title so what do you guys make of the singing that happens before the title line is spoken
0: So I, I have, I did find a transcription of what is being said. Oh, nice. I, I think that it is accurate. The words are, if only you call for me, if only you die for me, saw you burn for me, if only you call for me. And then everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. So
1: I got all those words when I try to transcribe it, but in slightly different orders. And I don't okay. know that the sequence is actually totally significant.
3: Yeah. But yeah. just
1: just hang out with those kinds of phrases. The first word is really hard to make out.
2: Yeah. It's
1: yeah. just kind of a, a general, like, roticized schwa, and I'm not sure what word is around that vocal right. sound. But mm. heard, but I, I read, uh, Heard you called for me. Saw you died for me. If only you'd burned for me. If only you'd come for me. And then the second time around it switches up the two middle lines. Heard you called for me again. only you died for me, me. saw you you burn for me, if only you'd come for me. So, hmm. I, I yeah. hear those as the feminine presence in this album. I don't know if you yeah. hear them any differently mm-hmm. than that. But but to take you can take it either way because yeah. it's it's open for interpretation.
2: Uh, it, it certainly tonally fits with the female voice that mm-hmm. we hear throughout the album. You know, it yeah. it has a feel for that. But yeah. lyrically, it also kind of feels like the Aaron character. Yeah and it maybe this is purely because you've just filled my brain with snakes coming. Sure. <laughs> um it, it does feel very in line with where that story that and I'm sorry, Bach was referencing. Yeah. Um yeah, it, it feels very in line with that. So I could I could see it being the feminine voice, but the lyrics feel perhaps more in line with with the Aaron character
1: so, so here's yeah. the thing you don't have to pick one or the other I mean for yep. interpretive purposes you don't but also there's two voices singing I don't know if y'all have noticed that
0: yeah right
1: and this blew my mind as as we were preparing for this show listening to this over and over again you know in the whatever 20-ish years since this came out it had never occurred to me till just recently that Aaron is singing this opening section underneath dan so dan is definitely in the mix a lot more prominently right but and i had i was fully convinced that we never heard aaron's singing voice until the last track of catch for us the foxes but that's not true he he sings here right um and so I, i you know there doesn't necessarily need to be significant that you know, that we're arguing this is like the last part of the narrative story. But if you want to flip the album sequence and think of it that way, then it's like the very conclusion of both this album and the next one. He finally comes in and sings something. Yeah, Um, that's interesting. But you could also take it that those words are being projected towards a different you from the feminine and the masculine voice that are singing at the same time. Yeah. Not towards each other necessarily. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I I mean, I yeah, I think that there's a way to, to read this as the you being Christ or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Um, but there's also, I mean, here's a potentially interesting reading. So D- Dunn's poem, A Valediction for Being yeah. Mourning, is uh, about a, a speaker who is leaving his lover and he's instructing her to basically not make a big deal about it right? To be like a dying man who mildly just like accepts his fate and passes. And that in so doing, their love will become transcendent. Mm -hmm. And so there's, if you read this as the Aaron character speaking to the, you know, sort of quietly, like almost like in his mind, like thinking this one last I'm backtracking sort mm-hmm. of moment. And then this reminder, everything's beautiful and nothing hurt. Everything's beautiful and nothing hurt. Everything's yeah. beautiful and nothing yeah. hurt. And then a valediction, forbidding mourning, which is uh, a rejection of that kind of like passionate, like sacrificial, mm-hmm. explicit sacrificial love. So I think that that juxtaposition makes sense. I do have some hmm. qualms about the use of phrase, everything is beautiful, nothing hurt, which I'll, sure. I'll say for, <laughs> for a second. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that if we're trying to make sense of what is the done poem doing yeah. here, yeah, I think sure. that's one possibility. I, yeah,
1: I'm with you. Here's totally. here's my, my one more piece of evidence for some kind of interpretation that, that there's this female voice present in the beginning, even if it's only partially what's going on. Um, and I'll see if I can... Play this without mangling it. This A major chord that is introduced as a sort of a secondary voice in yep. nice and blue just before it comes back uh, on top of this riff. Mm-hmm. Now we're in we're in the key of F sharp minor. And it sort of alternates between F sharp minor and E major. So for one, the two alternating sort of harmonies that the bass is implying are those same two notes that we have the high voice singing in the middle of nice and blue. It's an F sharp yeah, and an E now echoed in a much lower range and just decorated with this chromatic figure on top. So that's one thing we have that F sharp E pattern repeating, but we also have That's interesting. I don't. I know I make I make mountains out of molehills all the time on this thing, but not at all. It's not quite an A major triad. I thought it was. It's two out of the three notes that would have made an A major. Those two, with that on the bottom, would have this nice A presence, which fit fits in the key. But that lowest note is a is a B. So we have the B root with the other two notes of an A stacked on top, and then you have this high note of a B on top. So it's actually A and B just kind of like, it's two notes out of the triad for each chord, stacked on top in this kind of interesting cluster.
2: Wow, yeah. You
1: know, what what I'm thinking is like, the feminine presence is calling towards this aesthetic life as a possibility that ultimately is rejected towards, you know, leaving her for some sort of divine calling towards the ethical life. Yeah. Um, And so those two are sort of in a moment of final conflict, but in a really soft way, and and we're going to hear these mashing up against each other in a really, really different fashion when we get to gentlemen, once this thing cycles back around to the beginning, and and we'll talk about that when we get there. I just wanted to to make a case for that, that there's some interesting stuff going on in the musical material right there uh, and all that swirling around. And so for me. The imagination especially of something like the orpheus myth right here makes a kind of sense if you think of this as a feminine voice because it's it's like the opposite of what happens like somehow like the snake has bit her she's descended to the grave and then he just doesn't come like he doesn't come Hmm. to rescue her it's like it's like the anti-orpheus in this case you know if only you died for me if only, you know, I saw you burn for me, but if only you'd come for me. Like, there's like this sort of, you were almost there, but you didn't quite make it. Yeah. And to me, that adds extra emotional resonance to the very end of the song with the very last line, which is, as far as I can tell, not borrowed from Dunn, but, but it's Aaron's own you know, original sort of tag at the end. So let's, that's all I have to say about the opening half of this song. Anything hmm. else you guys want to talk about before we get to the title?
2: Nope, that's nope. better than anything I had okay. in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
1: So what's going on, Joel? What does the title of the song mean and, and okay, why so- is it poorly used?
0: Well, I don't. I don't know if it's poorly used. I mean, we can we can talk about this. I'll just say this uh, to start. Uh, this this is one of the most famous lines, if you know, from Vonnegut's work, and I think because of that, it's also the most widely misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, people often take this to be a kind of positive affirmation. Right. That Vonnegut is saying that the world is beautiful and nothing is wrong with it. And that is not what Vonnegut is saying. Yeah. Um, so let me just explain where this comes in, in the context of, of the novel Slaughterhouse Five, which is where this is from. So uh, the, the main character, Billy Pilgrim, is uh, it's on his wedding night. His wife, Valencia, is asking him about the war and what it was like. And the whole novel, right, is about the horror of World War II, in particular, the firebombing of Dresden. And he kind of doesn't really know what to say, but then all of a sudden, the narrator who, you know, people, I think, often mistake the narrator of Vonnegut's novels for Vonnegut himself. Right. You know, Vonnegut sort of Messes with the readers in, in this way um, by doing that. But he just kind of jarringly inserts this thought into Billy Pilgrim's head where he says, it suddenly occurs to Billy Pilgrim, uh, you know, an idea that would, or, or a statement that would make a, a really good epigraph for him. And then the narrator says, and it would make a good one for me too. And you don't see what that is until. Yeah the next page, or maybe even two pages later, where Vonnegut has a full-page sharpie drawing of the headstone that says, everything is beautiful and nothing
3: mm. but. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I think really though, in order to understand that, you have to go back to the previous chapter where Billy Pilgrim, who, you know, the, the premise of the novel is that he's unstuck in time. He's just randomly out of his control, bouncing between these different moments in his life. And one of those moments is he is on another planet at the end of his life um, Mm -hmm. that is inhabited by these creatures called Tralfalmadorians. And the Tralfalmadorians are like Billy Pilgrim, sort of unstuck in time, but they can control where they go. That's the Mm -hmm. difference. And Vonnegut Vonnegut uses the Charles Amadorians a, a bunch of times in, in his novels. In at least three, right? Yeah, at least three. Um, and what they sort of, I mean, this so this idea that, especially in Slaughterhouse-Five, that, that they can control time, what it means is that they never have to suffer, right? So they, there's lots of, and Vonnegut is not coy about this. I mean, I think he makes it pretty obvious that that's what they do, right? Is that no. they're explaining yeah. to Billy Pilgrim you know, he's talking about, like, why do why do I have to keep going back to, like, these moments in the war that are so horrible, where, like, my friends die and stuff? Like, why can't I just be in, like, the happiest moments of my life? And they're like, well, you just, you can't. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we spend time with our families and we know that in this moment they're alive and over there they're dead. And so it's like time for them is like a, a three-dimensional space that yeah. they can kind of... Travel to. The point of all that is that that idea juxtaposed with the tombstone, right? This is, it's really a critique of the Tralthamadorians, right? Vonnegut does not think that everything is beautiful and nothing hurt. He definitely Mm -hmm. doesn't think that. Um, He thinks that's a problem, right? The the way that the Tralthamadorians live their lives is not how we are able to experience time. And so there is no such thing as pretending as though there is no suffering, as though everything is beautiful and nothing hurt. And so that's the, I think that that's where the misunderstanding often comes in with this uh, This quote, people, you know, get this tattooed on themselves. And if you have this tattooed on, on yourself, just just use the explanation that I just gave, right? And yep. say it's a you know it's a critique of this idea, right?
2: Um I've never wanted it as a tattoo so much as now that I have a full more full <laughs> understanding.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it is it's a great moment. It's I think it's a really it encapsulates a lot of what Vonnegut's work is actually about, I yeah. think, which is this paradox of the sort of sacrality of human life juxtaposed with the horrific things that we are able to inflict on one another, right? Yeah. And that that those two things seemingly should not go together, and yet they do. So, I I guess I am not sure if to me the the sentiment everything is beautiful and nothing hurt fits more with the ascetic life than it does the ethical. Yes, because um if you're saying that everything is fundamentally beautiful and there's no suffering, right? To say nothing is hurt, right. is to say there's no suffering, then you are not choosing the good and the evil. To, right, you're not you're not making that choice of saying there is good and evil. That is fundamentally what the ethical choice is. Yeah. yeah. Or Kierkegaard yeah. Um, and Vonnegut, by the way, is you know, often considered to be an existentialist sci-fi, you know, postmodern sure. novelist. Um, so there's lots of, you know, I don't know how much Kierkegaard <laughs> Vonnegut read, but um, he certainly was very familiar with existential ideas, right? Yeah. Um yeah, and so this idea that you that you have to embrace the suffering or evil in some way you have to acknowledge that it exists so that Mm -hmm. you can choose between right that I think is very present in Vonnegut's work and so Mm. if if we're going along with this a b thematic right Mm -hmm. we're trying to apply Kierkegaard to the song then if the if the the speaker is using it in the incorrect way right then yeah it's it's almost like he's choosing a right and not and not b um, yeah. which again as i said in in the last episode i think i think that's okay right because we're still in the first album right <laughs> right? Yeah, we right have right. a long way to go and so if if the and and i think that that's i mean again like there's so much that we could say about Hear about evangelical culture and and um, how oftentimes, uh, especially millennial or the the generation between Gen X and and millennial, right? Which Aaron is, I guess, part would be part of or or close close to that. Yeah, maybe Mm -hmm. you know, very young Gen X or very old (laughs) millennial. Yeah. Um, But, but we, you know, um, I'm, I'm of that generation too. And uh, I think, you know, 18, 19 year old me was very, very much taken with the, with aesthetics, right? Sure. With, um, you know, sort of pure emotion. um, And I, I didn't really give the ethical much consideration, I don't think. And I I don't, and that wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. Like I don't, know that I was really thinking of life in terms of an aesthetic versus ethical choice right, but yeah. I was I was very very drawn to this sort of emotional aesthetic uh, very feeling oriented kind of approach to living my life that's why I loved emo so much was yeah, that right because well, yeah well I mean take this back a moment to
1: to when we started this show we were talking about the band in general. We talked about the significance yeah. that this is a band that forms and puts out their first album along the the timeline right around 911. Yes. yes. And it's not insignificant that emo music uh sort of has its roots whatever the sort of deeper roots in punk and all that is going Mm -hmm. back to the to the late 70s and 80s in the 90s we really get this movement and the 90s were relatively speaking an economically prosperous time like the country was doing well and and there's sort of like a cultural luxury to have strong emotions and to find expression for them yeah, in a very yeah. personal sort of it, the, you know, this is about me and my feelings way in, right. in a way that like in a current moment, as we're making this show feels much tougher to express those kinds of feelings because oh, the problems 100%. we're experiencing are much more collective problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that, that sort of that whatever, you know, wherever we want to put the brackets on where, who that generation is mm-hmm. their coming of age was in a moment where these kinds of feelings were, what was on the menu, like if that, that that doesn't trivialize it, but like, no, no, no. no.
0: Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it does. I think it's, I think that's accurate. You know, I think sometimes we're, (laughs) we can be very hard on uh, 18, 19 year olds, sort of expecting them to already have everything figured out. Right. And as someone who regularly teaches 18, 19 year olds, they don't. Um, yep. and you know, and that's okay. And so we're sort of acknowledging that, right. We're mm-hmm. not saying like, oh my God, this is like the most brilliant record ever in all respects. And look, it just gets more brilliant from here. I mean, we love it, but yeah, there, yeah. you know, there are things to say about it in, you know, these kinds of, of terms and to just acknowledge that like, Hey, they were young and, and it does get better from here, but you know, we, we can acknowledge that like, yeah, in some ways this, um, kind of leaning into the aesthetic if that's what's happening, you know, is is some way in some ways a kind of individualistic, perhaps even selfish move um, that yeah. is born out of this particular era in time. I sure. think you're 100 percent right, Steven.
1: Yeah. I also think you can just look at the band. I mean, we look at like they were noted for the way they dressed when they started, they yep. wore these sort of really hot looking suits. I don't know if they were velvet or something, but it looked like, yeah. you know, really sweaty uh, yeah. to wear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even if they're playing like, you know, on a generator stage, a cornerstone in the summer, like they, you know, that's kind of this right. this iconic moment. And, and that video is on YouTube somewhere uh, if right. anyone out there wants to see it, uh, of yeah. the guys playing in the summer in Illinois, I went to the cornerstone festival and it was not a, Cool place, like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I don't mean that, but it was it was very hot at the time of year that that happened. Yeah. That's all <laughs> hot I mean. And humid. Yeah. yeah, hot and humid, and there's a there's like a I don't know if it's actually a pond or, or just rainwater that had set oh. in a field
3: <laughs> at that oh, festival, gosh. but like.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of moisture around I don't know why I'm, I'm fixated on sweat right now but anyway they had a very distinctive look yeah that, that was put on right and I think they got compared to the hives and maybe they thought that like they didn't want to like they wanted to distance themselves from that right. and you know they had flowers strapped to their microphones which they they've come back to doing that in the sort of last right. part of their career now and it's yep. and it's a really like it's a great image like it's a lot of layers of meeting. that, uh, And for me, like when I heard this album for the first time, I had, I don't know, like without even knowing how to articulate it, I had this very like old world vibe about it, that there was something sort of 19th century, but maybe even earlier. And, and I think the way that they presented themselves You know and we're using the word aesthetic here to mean a few different things i think what kierkegaard means by aesthetic whatever the word is in danish and just talking about like pretty things like are are very different correct but there's there's still some overlap and i think in the way they consciously present themselves in this very sensuous like pay attention to the way we look fashion that is very starkly contrasted with how they are going to look
2: basically the rest of their careers after this first album even in fact how aaron at least and i think the rest of the band too cared about themselves outside of the performance of the band. And I mean yeah. that not even when they're on stage, but just what they were doing. And there's this yeah. tongue in cheekness to it the entire time, like reminding everyone that this was a side yeah. project initially yeah. yeah, from the operation. Yeah. And they kind of saw it as a joke. The name yeah. was a joke. The way they dressed was a joke. They, I yeah. mean, they felt like the Beatles in a sense too. Yeah. And that yeah. is so interesting to to look at with this. So all I wanted to interject was, I don't think we can know how the title is being used until we dissect the rest of the song sure, lyrically. Sure. And then the rest of the album too, just because it is track four, while if we're following our narrative structure, it's actually the end. Yeah, right. In a sense, you can still be informed by the rest of it though, to sure. kind of find your meaning there. So yeah.
1: I, I also think it's worth pointing out that, that Aaron speaks the title twice. Yeah. Um, you hear it really quietly somewhere in the middle uh, of, of the A section. Of the A section. Yeah. And then it comes again again. So after we've had there's this pivot point where the music shifts, and then and then when you hear him say it most clearly, is, is right after the music has changed. Mm-hmm. So just to run with something here, if there's two different ways to read this title one that is sort of ignoring the suffering of the world and just saying everything's fine and let's just enjoy life. You know, we, we get a moment within the A section of this song where that's a possibility. We're literally... Yeah. I mean, okay, so, so for what it's worth, whatever else I said about the music here... That key of F sharp minor is is just... It's the relative minor of A major. It's all the same pitches as an A major scale, for what yeah. it's worth. Yeah. Not to, to go on about the theory of that, but it's... It's the sort of darker side of A major that's that's happening. We um, so in in that section we hear the phrase once, and then the music shifts. So and then we get this thing that happens. That's going to be the music the rest of the song. So here's yeah. why that's so significant. It's a sudden change into the first unambiguous tonal cadence into a key that we've heard so far on this album. Hmm. And it lands in, of all things, B minor. So we've been in what is functionally the key of A major up till this moment in the song. And then there's this this no preparation, just quick, Pivot all of a sudden. We're in the key of B minor and we're just in all it is is just a you know, B minor chord, B e minor, which is sort of a setup to what's gonna bring us back home. An F sharp major, sometimes with a sort of a seven implied based on what the guitars are doing, which is yeah. in every respect. wants to resolve back to that B minor, and it just loops. So we create this musical circle that's going to keep playing that starts on B minor, goes mm-hmm. around this, the, the musical loop, and lands on B minor, and then starts over again, and it just keeps repeating that. So it's right after we shift into that, that solidly B minor territory that we clearly hear him say, everything was beautiful and nothing hurts. And So I think you can read almost like a realization. It's like he's muttering back over the words again to himself, but they mean something different now in a different context.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You talking about the multiple readings, you know, after Joel's awesome yeah. discussion of, of, oh, yeah. of it. it it makes me think back to nice and blue mm-hmm. oh let me find the line oh no uh yeah a life left half behind that's what yeah. it was so everything yeah. was beautiful and nothing hurt in the life that i left behind because i left you yeah so in a sense, to me that's the that's the logic for it being a reading of it being to be Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. was beautiful and nothing hurt in the alternate timeline, if you yeah. will, sure. uh, of 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 life. So it's more it that could be the reading of it, and this is why Aaron is so freaking good. Is that with the context of the other six albums, I like that reading better. But when this mm-hmm. album first came out, I probably would have leaned fully into the yeah misreading of the title.
1: Well, and I think. Again, I don't put too fine a point on on this parallel. Yep. But but Kierkegaard's a aesthetic life and b ethical life to me feel very much at home with the picture in in Genesis one and two of either living with like sort of free reign of the garden to eat from any tree you want and just enjoy life fully, or to choose. To have the knowledge of good and evil—that this is mm-hmm. this is what's available to you—and once you've made that choice, you can't go back. Yeah, yeah. So when we think about this sort of serpentine image at the beginning, that there's something that's not right there in the surface, but there's something looming in the background that's sort of making this offer. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's right there. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this shift and something breaks and it's that moment after the sort of like at the moment that you can't go back anymore that all of a sudden you hear him say everything was beautiful nothing hurt this realization that like what yeah so so this is re- going with your reading nick that like he, he's realizing now that this old life that he had really was beautiful mm. and nothing hurt and now and so and and i realize that that's complicated because now i'm equating the choice of the ethical life at the same time uh with some sort of god figure and devil figure simultaneously yeah (laughs) but welcome to the book of genesis right
2: i mean like it is (laughs) it's tricky (laughs) Um, well and correct me if i'm wrong but genesis among other early books is where sometimes the devil is a tool of god to teach lessons to us right is is that
1: I don't think there's any indication of that in Genesis. Maybe, uh, maybe when you get to Job, you can read it that way. And Job's yeah. such oh. a complicated book. I don't want to.
0: Yeah, make I mean, that argument so here. That but- the 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 Hebrew word Satan appears, yep. I think, ten times in the generic like that, just Satan, which and it means an adversary. Right. Yeah um and then hasatan appears 13 times but only in the books of Job and Ezekiel and mostly mm. in in Job um the i mean you know the idea that the serpent in Genesis 3 is satan is something that came into Christianity after the book of Revelation was written right um because <laughs> of the way that John talks about the the uh Calls Satan that ancient serpent, mm-hmm. right? And and so, uh, early church fathers assumed then that the serpent in Genesis three must have like Origin, for example. Um, yeah. Tertullian thought this, you know. But the the word Satan doesn't appear
2: in the Book of Genesis nowhere. No, anywhere. no. Um, which is interesting. It's just a snake. <laughs> yeah, right. Just a yeah. snake. Interesting. Interesting. Um,
0: yeah, but but I do think that there. But certainly there is there's a choice being made and in the christian so i mean in, in the jewish tradition satan is really a stand in for the political enemies of israel mm-hmm. right um, there isn't anything that's especially deceitful about that figure that doesn't come in until the new testament right mm-hmm. um so but but certainly in as going back to the earliest part of the christian tradition there is an idea that Satanas, which is the Greek transliteration of Satan that ends up in the New Testament, that figure is an individual, right? Not just a metaphor for, you know, Babylon or something like that. Right. Uh, but also is a liar, right? A deceiver. Yeah. And, you know, right. it is very complicated, I guess, to, to yeah. sort of transpose choosing between God and the devil into yeah. the voice that's happening in Genesis 3, even though. Traditionally, yes, uh, you know, of course, that's how a lot of Christians right. view that. Um, yeah, but, but it's but it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, well, so
1: so just just one more th- clarification on the image uh, in Genesis, because I think we've brought this up before, and it's worth saying now. We um we have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of good and the tree of evil, right? It's right. not those two things. And the tree yes. of life, or both trees, were planted in the garden of delight, right? I mean, I think that's what mm-hmm. Eden means, literally. Mm-hmm. And so we have in the garden of delight, the tree of life as as an option, and then good and evil is a package deal as the other option. Right. Um, and and we don't need to to wax theological anymore on that here i just i just i don't know for me for me that's that's kind of what's at stake in the emotional landscape of this moment of transition on the album
0: I think that there is uh, there's definitely a, a decision being made, and I think that that's a good transition actually to done the use of Dunn's uh, A Valediction: Forbidding Mourning. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I'll just say a few things about Dunne. Um Please, that's okay. So, Dunn is part of a of a school of what are often referred to as metaphysical poets in the English tradition, and and. All that refers to is the way that they use metaphor. So if you think to like uh, Shakespeare, for instance, Shakespeare is, well, Shakespeare is maybe a bad example because he, he has a whole range of different kinds of metaphors. But some of the most famous metaphors that he uses are more traditional, they're rooted in more traditional Renaissance era metaphors, especially in Italian poetry, like the idea that love is a rose something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But the metaphysical poets differ in that their metaphors are strikingly odd, right? And this is what the term metaphysical conceit means, right? The conceit, meaning the repeated image, the sort of central image of the poem is completely out of left field. And, And the place that that happens is comparing the lovers to two feet of a compass, When you think about it, like, yeah, okay, we see exactly what Dunn is saying, but that was very much sort of avant-garde in a way for Hmm. the time that Dunn was writing. This particular poem also, as far as Dunn is concerned, is very, very regular in terms of its meter and its rhyme scheme. Um, It's in iambic tetrameter, which is
2: a very uh, That's standard. That's one of the most common used right, yeah. meters. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, I mean, Shakespeare is iambic pentameter, but that pattern, dun-dun, 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 with the mm-hmm. syllables, um, yeah. and then the number of syllables, it's very, very, very common. Um, but Dunn nor- typically did not write poetry in, in such a uh, standard hmm. meter. I mean, in a way, he was kind of punk, like, in this regard, <laughs> right? Because he was His rhyme schemes were really, really unique and strange and and very experimental. And his meter was also like all over the place, typically for him. And and that, again, was sort of a mark of this new generation of poets who were trying, they were reacting against the sort of uh, smoothness of Elizabethan poetry, Mm. which I do think Shakespeare is the sort of paradigmatic figure of. And what's interesting to me, especially about the idea of metaphysical conceit, is that Aaron is very good at this. There are lots of places in his lyrics where he is also employing metaphors that are are uncommon. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind especially is at the end of Brother Sister in what sweater poorly knit, um, yeah. like two pennies on a train track, the train will crush into one. That is a perfect example of metaphysical conceit. That's exactly yeah. what that what that means. Yeah. Um and so it it I, I'm kind of interested now, like as I was kind of reminded as I was reminding myself about Dunn and 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 everything you know, this weekend, it, it really struck me like, oh, I, I kind of want to s- track like how. How de- how that develops in Aaron's songwriting, right? The yeah. employment of of the metaphysical conceit, a la Donne. Sure, yeah.
1: I I'm super interested in tracking that too. I'll just put in a word that this particular poem, uh, a Valediction forbidding Mourning, shows up in at least three Me Without You songs that I can think of. It's not just this one. I know of two yeah. other songs in their catalog where this is going to come back again. Um, It also shows up in Aaron's verse on the Norma Jean track, uh, Mm. Memphis Will Be Laid to Waste. There's a quote from this poem in that verse. And I don't know, I probably can't play it, but I think I've got the lyrics here. Yeah. But before I read that, one of us should just read the John Donne poem top to bottom because he extensively quotes and paraphrases from it in this song. And it's just as important as reading the lyrics to the song
2: itself. I I have have it potentially more. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Joel. Joel. Okay.
0: Uh, as virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, whilst some of their sad friends do say, "The breath goes now, and some say no. So let us melt and make no noise, no tear floods, no sigh, tempests move. Twere profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears, men reckon what it did and meant. But trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. Dull sublunary lover's love, whose soul is sense, cannot admit, absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we by a love so much refined that our know not what it is, inter-assured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, Endure not yet a breach, but an expansion like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two so, as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. And though in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. Hmm. Well read.
1: So if you're <laughs> listening to this podcast right now and not every word of that created a, a vivid image in your mind, this is a good moment to pause and go look this poem up and just sit with right. it a while. We yep. live in a, in a profoundly unpoetic age and... and some of this stuff takes probably more time for us than it did for Dunn's original audience.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a great and, and, point. And I'll just say, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier what the, what the poem is about. Um, but you know, just to repeat that, you know, what, what the speaker is saying is he has to go and he's leaving his lover behind and he's instructing her. He's, he's telling her, we should not, uh, mourn this. Right. Um, and that's what a valediction forbidding mourning actually means. It's yeah, a, What does the word a,
1: valediction mean? I actually don't know.
0: Uh, it's like uh, uh, to say goodbye.
1: Okay. Yeah. So it's like it's a benediction. Kind a of a, farewell. A, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's a goodbye that forbids mourning. I mean, he. Yeah. Yeah. you you're right that the language right it, 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 because it's not familiar to us. It yep. seems very poetic and not straightforward, but actually the title is extremely straightforward, right? He's oh, sure. telling you exactly what this is about, right? It's yeah. a farewell saying. Don't be sad. Um, yeah. And so then he, you know, he's so you can see that, hmm. right? As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, um, you know, he's saying we need to be like them, right? Yeah, and let our love pass mildly away.
1: Let us not- die. Let us die.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> right. um, let us melt and make no noise, nor no tear floods, nor sigh tempests move. Right. So let's not uh, wail and cry and scream about it. In
1: other yeah. words, well, um, while Aaron yeah. is wailing and crying and screaming, I mean, I know right now we're we're quoting Dunn, not not Aaron Weiss, but still, right. like, yeah. there's right. this interesting sort of conflict between what right. what's being said and the, and the manner in which it's being said. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. And so, and and then there's this interesting moment too, that I, I, just kind of want to, so he says this thing about the earth and, you know, mm-hmm. trepidation and, uh, but the, the next stanza dull sublunary lovers love, uh, sublinary means, um, earthbound like right? beneath the moon, uh, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. you know, it, uh, the opposite of transcendent. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there's, mm. so he's saying that, uh, you know, this is dull, uh, sort of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, well, human. (laughs) Well, yeah, but, but see, but he's saying, he's saying that if we want a love that, that transcends, Mm -hmm. um, then, uh, then we shouldn't, then, then we shouldn't, you know, um, um, make a big deal out of this essentially.
2: Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. 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 Uh,
0: dull sublunary lovers love whose soul sense cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. So yep. um, basically saying those who are dull and subliminary can't handle absence, but we can.
1: Yeah. Um, and I and think I mean, it's worth uh, just highlighting this this phrase, at least in my copy of done here, that's in parentheses, whose soul is sense. Yeah. To me, that's that's like an encapsulation of, of the aesthetic life. Like the sensuality mm. is the sort of exactly. guiding principle.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Without yeah. the presence of each other, yeah, the, the, our my whole soul is based upon my sense of the things around me. And if the thing yeah. around is so I might have a memory of the person, but then all it is is grief, not a transcendental love. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm. And, and then there's before the right before the last three stanzas, which are the compass metaphor, he has another really beautiful uh, metaphor about the thinness of gold, um, where he says, our two souls, therefore, which are one so i must go endure not yet a breach but an expansion like gold to airy thinness beat yeah so he's talking about a jeweler who can you know gold is uh can be yeah built uh, a beat into super super thin uh like tissue paper almost yeah right? like
2: gold gold leaf is used right, in baking exactly. it's literally right. gold that was beat to the point of being like a leaf yeah
0: right exactly so he's he's saying that the that our separation of our two souls is not, is actually, it's an expansion of our souls, right? Like mm-hmm. we are, we remain connected like gold spread as thinly as possible. And I just, I think that that's a gorgeous, again, another example of a uh, metaphysical conceit just, in, sure it only Incredible. appears in this one, one stanza. Um, yeah. And then you have the, the compass metaphor, which yeah, is, is a
2: really, uh, yeah, we need to do this one justice because this is like <laughs> if there's there's several theses that Aaron posits throughout his lyrics, and the circular nature of love and life and and existence yeah. is yeah. is one of them. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: I want to get to the compass metaphor, but I want I want to take a take a moment in the middle of sure. of looking at the Dunn poem, and I, I want to read the lyrics from this verse that Aaron guested on this Norma Jean track. Yes. Oh, yeah, perfect. Um, because because he clearly has this poem on the mind. There's a there's just a moment where he directly quotes it, but then there's some imagery that kind of shows up in it as well. Mm-hmm. So so here we go. After he repeats the word fashion a few times, which is what he kind of like dovetails off of what uh, what the singer from Norma Jean had just said Um, then he says he laid emeralds in her eyes but I'd already tried a bracelet made of gold and scarlet thread around her wrist everything was wrong so we sang sentimental songs oh how seldom we belong but how elegant our kiss we painted crooked lines but we danced in perfect time to a love so much refined we know not what it is until, like a in wine, we pour into a grief we'd known before, but never quite like this. All I know now is regret. It follows like a silhouette along the cobblestone behind me that has nothing much to say except to innocently ask, its voice delicate as glass. Do you see me when we pass? But I continue on my way. I mean, it almost feels like those words could have been another song in between nice and blue and everything was beautiful but nothing hurt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just got used yeah. for this other band because me without you didn't find a place for them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh man. That that's a lot. <laughs> yeah.
1: The line that's that's directly lifted um is uh, a love so much refined. I mean, that's there in in the Dunn poem.
2: Yeah, I right. think. I, but we by a love so much refined yeah. that ourselves know not what is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it'll it'll be really interesting to kind of, as these, uh, the uses of of this particular Dunn poem come up again, to kind of think back to this discussion yeah. and, and yeah. See how it's changed. But also, I think, Nick, you're right. The idea of uh, the circle, right? Mm-hmm. And especially this, the final line of the poem makes me end where I begun,
2: mm-hmm. right? I
0: feel like, Aaron has other places in in songs where
2: all circles presuppose they end where they right. begin. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Oh That's- yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What,
0: what's that circle song? Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, the one where it's <laughs> yeah, where he's literally repetition. saying that.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think there are other places too. I mean, it'll be totally. interesting to to see that. But um, but yep. yeah, I, I think that you're right. Like, it's very interesting, and and I think especially for the record as a whole and this kind of theory that we've been working with, um, you know, about the, the speakers grappling with this lost relationship. I wonder to what extent this metaphor is, is really playing in, uh, sort of at the end, uh, at the end here. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Um, So the idea, right. Is, uh, you know, the compass is not. Uh, it's not a. It's not a um, directional compass. It's a compass for drawing circles, right? Correct. Um, yeah. be very clear about that, because some people might be thinking a foot of a compass, like what? Yeah. What no the, the heck are that? they talking no, about? It's, it's like, yeah, a compass that draws circles. So you put one foot in the center of the circle. And then the other foot travels around it and draws the circle. And, and the, you know, Dunn does a a really good job of sort of capturing exactly uh, what that looks like, especially in the middle stanza of the metaphor. And though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it and grows erect as that comes home. In other words, when you're using a compass, you, you lean it down, right? Mm -hmm. And as it comes back around, it, stands back up. Um, yep. And so he, I mean, he uses every aspect, right. Mm-hmm. Of what it looks like to draw a circle with a compass to, uh, to sort of fill in this metaphor as completely as possible. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's not just the two feet and one is circling the other, but like this idea that the foot leans and hearkens after the center yeah. and comes down and then come, you know, gross erectus that comes home, meaning to the end of the circle, right? Um, and
2: it's incredible how well that plays. At least in my mind. Now, I probably read more poetry than your average twenty-nine-year-old in twenty-twenty-one, but it's incredible how Joel, what you're saying is, it, it. I see exactly what's being talked about, both the metaphor and the physical thing, the the thing that is the metaphor, as well as what it's trying to tell yeah. us poetically. Yeah. And this man died in 1631. Yeah. Like that, that we can be transposed all the way yep. back then yep. and have that, that resonates so beautifully to us is incredible to me. Well,
1: and I'm holding in my hand a compass right now. I, I bought this at Ace Hardware uh, a couple of weeks ago as I was thinking about this song, because I wanted the physical experience of trying to draw a circle with it. Um, yeah. And it's, It, uh, it takes a little bit of practice to make Mm -hmm. it come back around and actually land where it starts. But you know, this is, this is now kind of like a curious luxury tool. I mean, you can still buy it at the hardware store, but computers can draw better circles than compasses can. But still, this is a thing that, that people use like in their jobs now. So there's something about the physical object that is the substance of the metaphor still Mm -hmm. existing in our time. That I think is as helps make this have some resonance now. I think there's some other things just thinking about Dunn's place in history that are just worth acknowledging. so the imagery of of gold where he uses it, he's living in a time I think I, I need to double check the dates, if not overlapping at least in a similar time period uh, to somebody like Isaac Newton, who mm-hmm. you know, despite all of his advances in in math and science was still very interested in alchemy and so gold has both the sort of beautiful aspect has the pliable aspect that you can hammer it but it also is this sort of like goal oriented substance that people are trying to figure out how to make so that's one thing that's going on but dunn is also living in the the era uh in in the wake of copernicus that that Mm. the idea of how rotation drives the universe has shifted now like back into the ancient world and you know, through medieval times like especially through through the medieval era people had a circular vision of the cosmos like they were picturing you know perfect concentric circles all the way from where we're standing yep. all the way up as far out as you can go but the earth was in the middle of those concentric circles and so with the copernican revolution when you get the idea that in fact the earth is rotating around the sun you still have this circular rotation in view yeah and if either of you have a stronger sense of the history of science than I do, was Copernicus still thinking of the Earth rotating in a circle around the Sun? Not an or oval. Or it was not an oval. Yeah, because yeah. somebody—I forget it was Kepler. Somebody suggested an oval, and I'm—I'm I'm not up on that right now. Yeah, but that's
0: that's Kepler. Kepler, I think, was after Copernicus, and and yeah. he discovered the elliptical pattern of Mars. Okay. Okay, yeah. so I think Copernicus
1: is still picturing a, a perfect circle as the pattern the earth is yes. moving around the sun. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's now like the cosmology that Dunn is stepping into in this this world that is still circular, but with us outside the center of it. And so I think for him in this poem to have uh, his lover as as the fixed point in the middle that he's rotating around makes sense in a Copernican view of the universe. Yeah. So I just th- I think that's also worth noting. Not that totally. that necessarily like makes the me without you song mean that much more, but, it, but I think that's all baked into that line and that metaphorical well, image. It,
2: to, to harken back to something you said earlier, Stephen, the f- sensation of the 19th century or earlier that we mm-hmm. get. And, and I mean, we get that throughout their discography, I think yeah. most strongly in it's all crazy and 10 stories down, like mm-hmm. just feel that way to me sure. anyway. But uh I mean everything we're talking about right now is using kind of that post medieval conception of the universe. It it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Also just wanted to plug in there, Isaac Newton was born uh seven years after Dunn died. So same okay. same basic but- time period, yeah.
1: But, but, but he wasn't the only alchemist, right? I mean, alchemy correct. had been going on yep. for a long time before Isaac Newton. So, so I, I think yep. oh, yeah. The, yeah, the gold imagery but, yeah. has some other layers beneath it, too. Absolutely. For sure. yeah, for
0: Francis Bacon, who was more of Dunn's era, probably a generation or two, I think, older than Dunn, if I remember. But he was big time into alchemy. Oh, no, yeah, he, he was. Just... Yeah, he was only 10 years older than, than Dunn. So yeah, yeah. same, same mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm.
1: Bring this back around directly to me without you. Can we read the lyrics from the end of this song now because they're very similar to "Done." Some some places it's an exact quote, but some places it's paraphrased slightly, and there's other lines added in.
2: Okay, so as we melt, let's make no noise. Oh, the profanation of our love to tell the world our passing joys, and we besides. Care less to miss our eyes and lips and hands. But honey, I'm not who you think I am. And so you'll be to me, who must obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. There's nothing wrong, as I'll be somewhere singing all along. No, tell me, uh, where have you gone, my love? Where have you gone, my love? Where have you gone? Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, so what strikes me immediately about that is the sort of what I read as the rejection of the sentiment of a valediction, forbidding mourning. At the end there, right, saying, no, tell me where you have gone. Where have you gone? Where have you gone? Right. I mean, that's. Seems to me explicitly what the speaker in Dunn's poem is saying. Do not do. Shouldn't do, do right? Yeah. That, that the circle will, uh, you know, that, that, that eventually they'll be brought back, right? Or something like that. Um, that there's.
2: Uh, in that sense, though, that's just to to skip to the answering of our question of in which reading are we supposed to take everything was beautiful and nothing hurt? That is an aesthetic. To use the Kierkegaard mm-hmm. phrasing, that's an aesthetic reading of Dunn's poem. Like, like I don't, I'm not saying Aaron missed the point, but he mm-hmm. is perhaps intentionally using it and making a different point with those lines and, and, and the theme of it than Dunn was, which yeah. is uh super fascinating.
1: Well, and, and where Dunn's poem ends, which to me is is far and away the most like iconic line of this song and of the poem both, yeah. is thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. But Aaron doesn't stop the song there. The next right. line is there's nothing wrong. <laughs> like that's <laughs> yeah. that's a weird place to go yeah. after after making this concluding line that has this sort of like circular perfection to it, and it's where the poem ends, whatever. So so after the image of the compass making its perfect circle back to where it starts, there's nothing wrong as I'll be somewhere singing all along, which brings up r- really similar line again in this uh, in this verse from the Norma Jean song, right? Yeah. Um, what does he mm-hmm. say? Everything was wrong. So we sang sentimental songs. Oh, how seldom we belong, but how elegant our kiss. So it's the opposite. Everything was wrong, is what he says in this in this other song. <laughs> so we sang sentimental songs. And here he says the opposite. There's nothing wrong as I'll be somewhere singing all along. And we can bring that all the way back to put music to our trouble from a couple songs yeah, ago too. Right, um, yeah, right. And then, and then this final line is in, is in parentheses. No, tell me where have you gone, my love? And then he repeats it. Where have you gone, my love? Where have you gone, my love? Yeah. And so to me, that last line, the where have you gone"s, This is me pulling in stuff from out of the text. I'm, I'm, finding myself the master of eisegesis on this show. It's like, whatever, here's a a dozen things that have nothing to do with this record, but isn't it interesting if you think about them? And so, uh, so, you know, this image back again to Orpheus and Eurydice, you know, if the ending of that, story. The way that myth is, is that Orpheus, you know, is is told by the Lord of the Underworld that if he turns around, that he's going to lose her forever. This is assuming, you know, that Orpheus has actually gone down to try to save her, which which I said something earlier, like maybe maybe this feminine presence that I hear in the first half of the song is asking him to come for her and he's not even coming. Yeah. So there's a complication there. But in this image, this Where Have You Gone, repeating it and sort of having it like disappear into the mist of the music has this kind of like epic finality to it like someone's falling away just into the abyss and there's no more return at all so it's like you know there's so many places in the lyrics on this album where it feels like he's trying to reassure himself of something where it's not because he believes it but because he wants to say it so that it might be true and and so you could even read this image from john dunn of the compass coming back around you know and them ending up where they've begun is like sort of a hopeful image that then he realizes as it spins out somehow that that's not going to happen.
2: Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Well, and then it's also interesting because we were presupposing that it was the feminine voice, the Amanda character, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, making the declaration, like, where are you? But this is clearly Aaron, especially, you know, if we're looking at least the way I'm reading it notated, none of the no tell me where have you gone my love none of that is in quotation marks so I have to assume it's the narrator speaking
1: um, yeah I guess so I mean it's not in quotation marks it's in it's in parentheses um yeah. plenty of the rest of the the, the lyrics of the song are in quotations and they're you know and they're quoting another poem
2: correct you
1: could maybe you could read it though as she's the one who's quoting John Dunn here yeah um, and that he's mm. responding with his only two lines are really, but honey, I'm not who you think I am and where have you gone, my love?
2: I do want to highlight though, and I can't recall if it was in all the clever words on pages or an interview I was reading or multiple interviews I was reading, but this is, I think the only Dunn poem Aaron ever references. So that's partly why <laughs> he gets so many miles out of it is sure, like, okay. he doesn't claim to be a Dunn fan. No, he he is a fan of this poem and finds use for it in a lot of places.
1: Well, and I even, I, and this may be the same thing you saw. There was a, um, there was like a Facebook live interview he did. And I don't know if that's even Mm. archived anywhere. He was like sitting outside in his backyard and there were rabbits in the foreground of the, of the image. And it was very (laughs) quaint. This is sometime last year. And, and the interviewer asked me about this and, and he's like, oh yeah, no, like that's the only poem by him that I actually know like which I don't know what that does for our our view of him, like doing what Dunn does so well with these sort of strange metaphors, these metaphysical conceits, maybe it's even more impressive that this is not like a body of work that he's super familiar with. He just has similar instincts. I think Dunn is a, is a perfect analog for for the kind of lyric writing that aaron does but i think it's and and who knows i mean the like the 2020 version of aaron weiss trying to remember a song that he wrote 20 years ago and what he was reading like i don't remember (laughs) what books i was reading 20 years ago like he may um, have sat for months with like the complete poems of john dunn and read all of them and it just happened to be this is the one that stuck i mean memory is a really slippery thing and so yeah um, who knows i don't i don't Good take point. that as being the definitive you know he may be his own unreliable narrator and that's fine uh, all of us are he'd be the like, first, to
2: tell, he'd be the first yeah, to tell you he is that. Right.
1: <laughs> i also think it's it's just worth this is stupid but i remember this made an impression on me that early on when i was listening to this band or i think it was during the catchphrase the foxes press cycle mm-hmm. there was a feature in hm magazine this this christian music used to be heaven's metal then it turned into heavy music magazine i think and there was this feature on me without you and and the person who wrote the article had gone to one of their shows and there's this moment in in this uh piece of journalism where they quoted an audience member just shouting out quote, John Dunn from the audience no. and being so struck. That, that was a weird thing for someone at a rock show to
0: say. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That's really incredible. <laughs> that's really incredible. Wow. Nick, you mentioned in one of the first episodes about talking about the what's happening when Aaron's vocals are uh, uh, distorted versus yep. not. Like when there's
2: an effect on his vocal versus... I've not. been thinking that's in the back of my head constantly yeah. in this song. So yeah. And this is the first track where that's happening directly. Like there are effects being used on Aaron's lead vocal mm-hmm. Every, everywhere else. It's someone else is singing or there's a backing vocal that you don't really hear what's being said, but I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the first place where we're getting at least Aaron yelling in different styles, yeah. if not having distortion on them.
1: No, I think it is. And I think we get we get a, a full spectrum on this track um, because we get him singing in a really low range, really low in the mix during the yep. first half of the song that's not put in the lyrics and is not really credited as like even part of the song, and you barely hear him. And of course, you know, it's only because I've listened to their other six albums a bunch of times that I even recognize the timbre of that really low voice at the beginning. As being Aaron, Aaron Wise, yeah. otherwise yeah. I had no idea. Especially like once you get to Untitled and his voice is so low in the mix by the end of their their whole output that now like I'm sort of accustomed to listen for it that way, and then you hear it in this track. So we go from hearing his singing voice to hearing him in a, just a plain spoken like regular conversational statement. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. It's the first time we yeah. hear that too, True. and then it's the, then it's the first time we hear uh his distorted screaming so we all three of those are are novelties in this track that we've not heard anywhere
2: before in this album which you brought up untitled so i'll go there for just a second this pairs so well with michael row your boat to shore oh my Mm. gosh in terms of the structuring of the song the way that his vocals are being used it's Part of the reason it's kind of a, a throwaway track, I think, in a lot of people's minds, and Michael really wrote a short could be called that too, is it's hard to focus on one thing because it mm-hmm. is more of a post rock, Joel, as you said, song. Yeah. And for a lot of people who like their hooks, you know, they they like the riffs that Mike's playing or they like Aaron's lyrics. What am I supposed to hold on to in this song? And yeah. uh Hopefully, we've cracked that egg wide open for y'all because the John Donne poem just every time I revisit it is like, oh, it's, yeah. it's like putting on well, a warm blanket.
1: And besides the, the, the timbre of the vocals and the fact that this is a, a quotation, there's also yep. something about the cadence of, of Aaron's delivery that is, that is so satisfying. And I think it's paired with the music. I think because we have this, um, this clear harmonic cadence. And we have a musical circle that, that just sets you up for its own conclusion, and then it repeats and it just loops and it loops and it loops and it keeps circling around. At the same time, we have this, you know, as you were mentioning, Joel, the, the in the Dunn poem, even, we have this very clean, kind of um, consistent metrical rhythm that then mm-hmm. just maps directly onto what Aaron's doing, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I remember the first time I listened to this album, that that was one of the things that really drew me in. Because it was so different than the lyrics of anything else I heard to hear clearly mm-hmm. metrical couplets just just it was just something so satisfying. It's like all the words rhymed both in in the way that the words sound but also just in the way that they they play with rhythm. and yep and I, lo- I love this ending so much. Before we we leave the song, and mm-hmm. you may have more stuff you want to say about it, but the last thing that happens is not um, the last line. Right. As, as evocative as, where have you gone, my love, where have you gone, my love, where have you gone, my love, where have you gone, is there's a guitar solo that comes after that. Mm. Um, yes. And even though we've had... Now this thoroughly confirmed B minor, this sort of like sad, unshakable presence of, of B. Now at the end, we get, um, <clears throat> and that, that repeats a couple of times. So in that melody, That high note that gets repeated as the chords change is, is of course, a, a B. So There's a B again, and there, that B is not even in the chord that's underneath it, it's actually uh, it's a dissonance ab- above the bass, but it still it persists on being B no matter what. Hmm goes back around in cycles and then the second phrase of the guitar solo when in in the key we're working in it's a legitimate option melodically to use an A natural here and the quick sidebar within tonal harmony there's only one major scale there's actually three different minor scales hmm. and one of those the the melodic minor um. has has a raised 6 and a raised 7th on the way up has a lowered 6 and a lowered 7th on the way down this is the only mm-hmm. thing that's made it into the western musical canon that's still an echo of um of the middle eastern roots of of the melodic patterns that we have so like arabic music mm-hmm. uses different scales going up and going down as yeah. a standard feature uh, right. indian music has the same thing where a different melody going up going down western music typically sticks to the same set of notes no matter what direction things are flowing now, a harmonic minor scale consistently has a raised seventh scale degree because you always want that resolution to make the chords sound like they're really landing someplace. This is a much softer sound if you don't have that that raised note like mm. it it doesn't mm. have that same pull because it's not that the yeah, same kind yeah. of dissonant like need to go up right so harmonic uh, minor, you need that A sharp leading to B to make it work. The guitar solo is a melodic figure, and there's this moment. Uh, and then, this is what it does next. Now, this is a descending uh, passage. It would be perfectly within Mike's rights. I assume maybe it's Chris playing a guitar so I'm not sure. But but whoever's playing. And then here. Like that sounds like it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. He doesn't play that consistently every single time plays an A sharp and not an A. So even though. Like the chords are, are solidly landed in B minor. Now we have a guitar solo that's noodling around, emphasizing the note B, and and very intentionally avoiding the pitch A. The A never comes back after we make this transition. Wow, that's all I want to say about that.
2: Wow. Well, where have you gone, my love? Um, yeah. <laughs> if, yeah, that's.
0: Well, um, and I'm, then I mean, and then the you know the song sort of melts into the beginning of the, you know, the A interlude. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep, and yeah. and we'll talk
1: about the music in the interlude when we get to that episode, but um, the A comes back in that interlude. Spoiler alert. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, because is it the beginning or is it an extended outro if we're yeah. reorganizing the, yeah. the order of yeah. things? Huh, interesting. Yeah, well, the way that the record
1: plays there's there is no closure at the end of this track i mean there's musical closure in the sense that it finally hits this satisfying cadential material that keeps resolving and then resolving and then resolving but there's no silence at the end of this track the a instrumental just just bleeds on into the beginning of it and you get no moment of that and yeah. even some of the the sort of guitar effect tones that are that are like the really featured sound of of the instrumentals have already cropped up uh yep. in the middle of this song like so there's anticipation of of a already before we even get to the end of the song and that transition moment um which is so, so
2: freaking effective it's yeah, in, yeah. it's incredible yeah. and that happens even more so in transitioning into b and out of b into yeah. silencer and that's mm-hmm. we'll get there uh yeah, but like, what a what a subtle kind of foreshadowing though that there's a guitar
1: tone that shows up midway through a track that as soon as you land on the next track you know oh like this yeah we saw this coming Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah just to just to put in one more word to make it obvious if it wasn't obvious already we have the final image of of a compass circling back around um, and now we have what what I think is a convincing case that that the narrative story really begins after this song is over and we go back to the beginning again. I, I yeah. all, all that to me seems, um, at least possible that it's calculated. Now, I don't know. So much of this stuff feels like just like wild speculation on our part, but this may actually be something they meant.
0: But it, it and it also, I think it, it makes the listening experience satisfying not that it's not satisfying if you don't have this, Mm-hmm narrative structure in mind but yeah. there was something satisfying about it because uh, it does feel now more circular right to have yeah. the transition moment from the end of the narrative back to the beginning come in the middle of the album yeah, um, yeah. you it, it makes it feel more of like the circle coming back around yep, to where yep. we've begun now right yep. uh, um, yep. and so that like you you don't ne- you don't necessarily get that if it's just you know straightforwardly Beginning to end, because then yeah. when the record's over, it's over. But no, with with if you put the end in the middle, right, then you have this, the the um, sensation of a circular movement, like yeah. a compass.